Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is where we will begin. Um, uh, The passage we'll start with will be on the screen. The other verses that I'm going to read won't be, but we're going to stay pretty close to the neighborhood of Romans uh, as we explore this doctrine tonight. So let's begin in verse 21 of Paul's letter to the Romans and chapter 3. So glad you all are here tonight, and I hope uh, that what we learn uh, will build up Jesus' church, and that it will build up you as well. Beginning in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I simply ask you tonight that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you as we hear your word read and as we hear it preached. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our current series, Theology for Life, we've been showing that there is nothing more practical than Christian doctrine understood well and lived well. We've been making the connection between what the Bible teaches and how we live on Thursday morning. What uh, the theology or the, the study of God, the truths about God and his word that we find in scripture, and then how to put those truths to work in our lives. How to live and behave as if we actually believe them. We've been making connections uh, between the meaning of Christian theology and then implications how this should affect us. And out of all of the practical questions we could rightly bring to the Bible, of all of the everyday matters that we care about, of all the daily concerns that we could come to Scripture and ask, what does theology have to do with this question? There is nothing that comes close to this. Are you prepared to meet God? Are you prepared to meet God? I'm not trying to get you to think about if you self-identify as a Christian. Jesus said there will be multitudes of people at the judgment, who self-identified as Christians and even did miracles. But when they meet God, they will discover they were not prepared to meet him. 
I didn't ask if your spouse thinks you're prepared to meet God or if the people you know in the community think you're prepared to meet God. Are you prepared to meet God? If that's not practical, I don't know what is. If that shouldn't concern us, I don't know what would concern us. It's the most important question we can ever ask. And what part of Christian theology provides an answer to this question? The doctrine of justification. So if you're wondering how a word with five syllables doesn't have to put you to sleep, let me tell you this. There is nothing, absolutely nothing more important than answering the question, are you prepared to meet God? And this is the doctrine. This is the truth in Scripture. This is the theology that helps us say, yes, I am. If you're not a Christian, this is really, really important. If you are a Christian, this is just as important. So we're going to talk about that for the next few minutes tonight, this wonderful doctrine of justification. Uh, My sermon does not live up to the beauty of the doctrine. Um, It's not as beautiful as the doctrine is. My sermon is not as logically ordered as the doctrine is. It's not as profound and deep as the doctrine is. So it doesn't measure up. There's no way in the world I can teach what the Bible says about justification and for you to go away thinking, wow, Pastor David really did this doctrine justice. That's not going to happen. Well, uh, George Whitfield is attributed, uh, he's attributed to, to say this quote. And it kind of reminds me of how I feel tonight as we jump into this. He said, there are many men who preach the gospel better than Whitfield. But no man can preach a better gospel. And so as I look at this doctrine, I'm thinking to myself, there are many men that can teach justification better than I can, but there is no one in the world who can teach a better justification. So let's look at what the Bible says. We're going to be really answering five questions, okay? Five questions, and we'll start with this. What is justification? What is justification? I'll begin each point with the answer right up front, and then we'll just explain the answer. So question one, what is justification? Here's the answer. Justification includes a legal declaration by God about us. It's a legal declaration by God. Now, that may not sound important, but it is. We're going to see how, why this language matters as we uh, jump into this. When we look at the ways that the word justify is used in the New Testament, it's used to describe declaring someone righteous or innocent or not guilty. That's how the word is used. Declaration, listen, is not transformation. Declaration is not transformation. What we're going to talk about is not how God transforms someone. Now that is important. That is the doctrine of sanctification. If you want to know what that means, 
come back and we're going to get to sanctification. But tonight we're not talking about how God transforms behavior. We're talking about a declaration, what God says about us. In other words, how he sees you. Sanctification is about how God transforms your behavior into more righteous and godly behavior. It is a process. Justification is not, listen, it's not about how God transforms your behavior. It's about how God regards you legally, how you stand before him. And it's not doing well or doing better or doing really good. It's not that. It's either, it's one of two options. God either sees you, he either declares you as guilty or not guilty. There's only two options. So justification isn't about how God works on us and our behavior and our lifestyle. It's about how God thinks of us, how he regards us, how you stand before him. For uh, biblical Christianity, this is important, God's declaration about people always comes before God's transformation of people. So if you're here tonight thinking, David, I'm not ready to meet God. I don't want to die right now. I think he would say that I'm guilty because I've done all these terrible things. So I'm going to keep coming to church and I'll do a Bible study and I'm going to pray and then God will transform me so one day he can declare me righteous. No, listen, friend, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. It's much, much, much better. God doesn't work on transforming you so one day he can say, you've made it, you're righteous. God's declaration comes first. Transformation comes later. Justification happens in an instant. God just declares you righteous, not guilty, not under condemnation. We'll get to how that happens. But justification is not personal transformation. Uh, Romans chapter 4, you're really close to it. Romans chapter 4 in your Bible, verse 5. Verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Who is counted as righteous? ungodly people. <laughs> you know, he doesn't say, he doesn't say here that God justifies the godly. Look at your Bible. Look at verse five. He doesn't say that there's a handful of people that get really, really good. They stop using words in a bad way. They stop blaspheming God. They start telling the truth. They stop stealing. They stop having adultery and they get so godly that God says, I'm going to declare you righteous. No, Our God doesn't justify the godly because there would be no one to justify. As we saw, if you go back into chapter 3, there's none righteous. No, not one. So if our God was the kind of God who looked among his creation for godly people so he could say, I'm going to declare you righteous, there would be no one to pick from. Well, then who does God justify? Who does God declare righteous? Look at this incredible verse. It's the person, the person who's justified is the person who believes on him, that's God, who justifies who? The ungodly. Do you know what qualifies you to become a Christian? You just have to start here. Knowing that you are ungodly. 
That's what qualifies you. You can be in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus can help you. But be aware, Jesus doesn't justify self, God doesn't justify self-righteous people. Jesus said, I didn't come to call righteous people to repentance. Self-righteous people don't repent. They don't think they need to. They have nothing to turn from in their sinful, blinded eyes. He said, I came to call sinners. Did you know that the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary? You're qualified to become a Christian if you're ungodly. And if you're honest about where your soul really is and the things you've done and the things you've thought, this is amazing news. This is amazing news. God justifies the ungodly. Uh, I I love what Wayne Grudem says about chapter 4, verse 5. He says, Paul cannot mean... God makes the ungodly to be righteous in their behavior because then they would have merit of their own and they wouldn't need faith. Rather, God declares the ungodly to be righteous in his sight, not on the basis of their good works. Remember, we're talking about ungodly people. But Gruden continues, in response to their faith. God's declaration, that's what justification is. God is saying something about how he sees you. Romans 8 really adds uh, to this. It helps us see it, I think, with a little bit of clearer vision. Romans 8, 33, 34. We're thinking about justification as a, as a legal declaration. God announcing how he sees you. Romans 8, 33, 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Paul is is saying that it doesn't matter if people condemn those who are in Christ because God declares them righteous. Now when he says, who is he that condemneth, he's not talking about people making you have ungodly behavior, right? No, condemning is also a declaration. So in other words, this is not changing how you live. This is your, um, uh, this is a legal standing. That's what we're talking about. Accusing. Who can accuse you if God has declared you righteous? Justification is the opposite of condemnation, right? This is legal terminology. We're either guilty or we're not guilty. To condemn is to declare a person guilty. To justify is to declare that someone is not guilty. And there's some pretty big implications here. Because in the Bible, it's very clear, and this is what Jesus taught. There's only one being in the universe with the gavel. This is why you don't need to forgive yourself. It's because you don't have the authority to forgive yourself. You don't have the gavel. You can tell yourself that you're forgiving yourself. That doesn't matter because you are not your own judge. You answer to someone much higher than you. You can call yourself righteous all all you want, but your declaration about how you see yourself doesn't matter. Whose declaration matters? The judge. Now, a murderer can walk into a courtroom and slam the gavel and say, I've forgiven myself, right? This is what people tell us to do, but he's still guilty. The only thing that matters in the courtroom is what the judge says. You're not your own judge. 
you're not your own judge. If you're going to be found innocent before God, if you're going to be prepared to meet God, the answer is not to have a better view of yourself or to forgive yourself. That's a terrible, terrible way to deal with guilt. The answer is not to run up to the bar and slam the gavel. The answer is to have the judge declare you innocent. Now, how do we do that? We're going to get to that. Just hold on. But the implications is that guilt is real, you will be judged, and God is the one who judges, not you. Justification is a legal declaration by God that leads us to question two. In justification, what is God declaring about us? So we know it's a legal declaration made by God. What is God declaring about us? Here's the answer. In God's legal declaration of justification, what he declares is this, that you and I are just, innocent, righteous in his sight. Now there's two sides to this. There's two sides to justification. And, and if you only have half of justification, there's some truth there, but you're going you're to miss the big picture. Okay? So let's think about the first side. Number one, God declaring you righteous means that, number one, you have no penalty to pay for past sins or current sins or future sins. It, it means God has slammed the gavel and said, not guilty. It means, number one, forgiveness of sins. Isn't this wonderful? We've sinned against God. We all live in cosmic rebellion against God. We come into this world and our heart is bent toward evil. Jesus told the Pharisees, you don't want to commit adultery and murder because you accidentally rubbed shoulders with a Gentile at the market. Jesus says, you want to do all these evil things because they're already inside your heart. So we need forgiveness of our sins, don't we? Because you and I are sinners. Our lives, our stories are full of sin. If you listen to someone's story, it's either full of how they've sinned, how people sinned against them, or all of the above. We can't listen to someone's story without hearing about sin through every scene, every chapter, because we are sinners. We're sinners. We need God's forgiveness. And the good news about justification, this first side of justification, is is that it means we have no penalty from our sins. But, That's only part one. Do you see why? If God merely declared us to be forgiven of our sins, that doesn't solve the whole problem. Sometimes people uh, use this memorable phrase to describe this first half of justification. Just as if I've never sinned. Now that's true, but that's only the first half of the story. Christians have a lot more to say than that. Why? Spurgeon put it this way. If the cross only granted us forgiveness of sins, but never gave us a record of obedience, we would be a creature neither fit for heaven or hell. God doesn't say, come to heaven if you've not done anything bad. God says, if you want to be in my presence, what does he say? Be holy, for I am holy. Our need to be righteous before God is not simply to have our sins forgiven. It's to be credited a perfectly righteous life. And without that, we don't get into heaven. We don't get into heaven. 
This is not just as if I've never sinned. This is just as if I've never sinned and just as if I have fulfilled every command that God has ever given. The second side means God not only declares us forgiven of our sins, but he declares us fully righteous. He sees you. He regards you. If you're justified, God regards you as if you have done every good thing he has wanted humans to do. So 1 John 3, 5 has part one. He was manifested to take away our sins. That's the negative of justification. Justification is taking something away, our sin. But then there's this positive, Romans 3, 21 and 22. We already read it. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. Justification means God's taking away your sin, but he's not done. He's giving you the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. I love, man, I love the baptism of Jesus when the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How did Jesus live? Did Jesus simply not do bad things? No. No, don't you love that summary from Acts where it says this amazing understatement? He went about doing good. What an understatement for the life of Jesus. Yeah, he went about doing good. So the way the father sees the son at his baptism, I am well pleased in him. Not just because he hasn't sinned, but look at all he's done. That's how God sees you if you're justified. That's how he regards you. This is what he's declared about you. This is what he has said when he slams the gavel. No sin, all righteousness. What a miracle. But a question arises. How can God declare that we have no penalty to pay for our sins if we have sinned? How can God further say that we, in his eyes, are perfectly righteous when there's a bunch of righteousness that you and I have never, ever done? That leads us to question three. How can God declare us just? Well, here's the answer, then we'll unpack it. God can declare us just because he freely imputes Christ's righteousness to us. In other words, he accounts what Jesus has done to us. How does this work? Remember the plus and minus of justification. He's taken away our sins. He's giving us righteousness. This is done through imputation. That's a boring-sounding word, but it's an, it's an exciting reality behind the word. There's an exciting story behind the boring-sounding word. Imputation means the good things Jesus did get credited to me if I have faith in Christ. Forgiveness means if I'm in Christ, I no longer have a sinful record. That's the minus. But imputation means if I'm in Christ, not only do I no longer have a sinful record, I am given the righteous record of Jesus. God looks at me and he treats me and regards me as if all of Jesus' good deeds were done by me and you. Romans 5, 17, that's why Paul says believers have received the gift of righteousness. We don't earn righteousness. We get it as a gift. It's just given to us freely. Now, for those who wonder How can God do this and still be just? How can God do this and still be righteous? How can ungodly people get a godly verdict? Well, if you're wondering, how can I earn a godly verdict when I've done all this stuff? You're right. You can't earn a godly verdict. You can't. 
this is what turns off some people about Christianity. There's a lot of ways to earn supposed justification. And this is why religions and cults have rankings. Islam, the door is wide open for this. If you want to get really interesting, Scientology, Mormonism, Judaism. The more you work, the more you get. Christianity is the more Jesus works, the more we get. This is why some people will never become a Christian. The same reason in the story, the older brother doesn't go into the party. Now, it's so hard for me to imagine. The older brother works in this fictional story, of course. He works outside in the Middle East all day. There's a party with meat. And he says, I'm going to stay outside of the tent. Why in the world would he do that? Because as he said, all these years, I have slaved away. If the younger brother goes in the tent and the older brother goes in the tent, what's the older brother saying? That no one deserves to be in here. That the only way in is by the Father's mercy. He's not interested in a party where you don't earn your way in. He'd rather not go at all. Some people will spend eternity without God in hell simply because of pride. They don't want to go to an eternal party Because they didn't get to pay for the ticket. It's amazing. Is imputation then unfair? Jesus says, or the father says, look at all this amazing stuff my son did. David Harris, I'm going to treat you like you did it too. Well, imputation would be unfair if it wasn't for substitution. So we have 2 Corinthians 5.21 which doesn't just say that God treats us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That means God saw the Son and treated the the Son as if he was guilty of sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God looked on the Son in the incarnation on the cross. He saw him as guilty of every vile thing you have ever done and then treated him as such. That's substitution. Why would God do that? Imputation. He did that so he could then look at you as if you had done every good thing the son had ever did and then he treats you as such for eternity. Do you think this affects how we live? I think it does. So how do we become justified? How do we get in this? That's question number four. How exactly do I get in? It's simple, by grace through faith. It's by grace because we don't earn it. And then faith is the way we get in on grace. Faith is the means. It's the tool that helps us reach grace. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God wanted to save us in such a way where we couldn't brag. He wanted to take wicked sinners and treat them for eternity as if they were righteous sons. Why would he do that? He wanted to do it salvation in such a way where none of us could brag about it. That's what verse 9 says. That's his motivation. You say, why does God feel that way? I don't know, but he does. (laughs) He does. All right, how does knowing the doctrine of justification affect 
Christian living. Here's our definition all put together. Justification is God's act of declaring us legally righteous through forgiving our sin and imputing Jesus' righteousness to us completely by grace through faith. Completely by grace through faith. Question for you if you're not a Christian, what are you waiting for? I mean, what are you waiting for? Are you going to be like the older brother that Luke 15 talks about and stand outside of the party? If all of your airline miles get taken away, but they offer you to fly first class and you say, no, I don't want to fly first class. I want to use my airline miles. You really going to say no to a God like this? Are you really going to say no to a God like this? And then for Christians... How does this affect how we live? Let's go through some implications and then we're going to sing together and we'll be done. Number one, justification is God's way to deal with human guilt. Uh, In a sermon a couple years ago by uh, by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung, he talked about how guilt um, did not go away with secularization, which a lot of people thought it would. Nietzsche, in particular, thought as God died, as, as, as belief in God died in the West, that people wouldn't deal with guilt anymore. He blamed guilt on religion. He says when people are less religious, they won't deal with guilt. But the opposite has happened. People are more obsessed with guilt now than they were back then, when they had a Christian civilization. Guilt is, here's the point, guilt is not going anywhere. And you will have to deal with it. And you can wish away the existence of God, but it won't wish away your guilt. Why? Well, Jesus rose from the dead, I believe him. And what he said is that the human heart is full of sin. And if Jesus is right, we're always going to have guilt, no matter what the culture says. So you're going to deal with it one way or another. The culture has ways to deal with it. But if you've noticed, in our culture, though there's guilt, there's no redemption. Have you been on social media? Lots of accusation, lots of condemning, lots of hatred, but there's no way to be redeemed online. There's guilt, and there is a lot of shame for stuff you do, and then for stuff your ancestors did or whatever, but there's no redemption because they have no Christ. Justification is God's way to deal with your guilt. There will never be effective atonement in a world in which Secular people have no explanation for what sin is. If you don't believe in sin, how do you think you're going to get atonement? Well, you're not. But Jesus offers you a better way. And this applies for you if you're a Christian, if you've already accepted Jesus, if you're already justified. Don't go looking for other ways to deal with your guilt when Jesus offers it to you freely in the gospel. Number two, justification helps us relocate assurance. Since I talked about this a little bit in the Trinity, I won't belabor the time here, but let me just say this. Most assurance problems are inward focused, but justification isn't about you. Well, David, what if my faith isn't enough? You said that justification comes by faith. What if my faith isn't good enough? Martin Luther helps us here. He dealt with people in his church that were worried about their faith. And he told them this. I'll paraphrase him. Faith is not a meritorious work, 
because it's not something good that you do to point at yourself and say, God, accept me. Luther says faith means you're pointing at Jesus and saying, God, accept him. So as long as you're pointing to Jesus, it doesn't matter how well you're pointing at Jesus because faith is not a good work. It's giving up on good works and trusting in something else. Number three, justification is the key to victory over unforgiveness. Many Christians live forgiven, but not forgiving. Now, the Lord's Prayer taught us this should not be the case. If you're ready, if you want to get up in the morning and say the Lord's Prayer, if that's your thing, and ask God to forgiveness, it's already written into the script. As I forgive others. Jesus made it very clear in the model prayer that's not how he wants us to operate. He doesn't want us to be takers of forgiveness without being givers of of forgiveness. You say, well, I don't want to forgive. I don't have the resources to forgive. Yeah, of course you don't. The Bible doesn't say you have the resources to forgive. Ephesians 4.32, there's a little song that my kids sing. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll say it. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And I've said many times, if the verse ended there, it would be a hopeless, meaningless jumble of words, but it doesn't end there. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. I don't know how to forgive. Of course you don't, but Jesus is amazing at forgiving. Jesus is amazing at forgiving. What's been done to you, do that to other people. God is not asking you to show anyone anything that you've not been given infinitely more. You'll never have to forgive anyone for as many sins as God has forgiven you because of his son. Never. Number four, justification is the answer to a critical spirit. Many Christians have a critical spirit because in their lives, they are the judge of the world. So you talk to them and they're critical of their church, of other churches, of Christians, other Christians, of other families, of parents, of marriages, of kids. They're acting as if they're the ones that hold the gavel and they've forgotten that God is the one who's the judge. If we sit in and meditate on and delight in the justification, what God has declared about us in Christ, it will leave no room at all for a critical spirit. Call out sin, confront sin when it happens. Don't cover up sin. That's not what I'm saying. But don't be a critical person. Critical people have not soaked themselves in the doctrine of justification. And it shows. It shows. Number five, this is so uh, encouraging to me. Justification is good news for people pleasers. Justification is good news for people pleasers. If you're obsessed with how other people think about you, um, if you're frustrated by people when they don't like you, hey, don't forget what God has said in his divine courtroom about you. If God can take someone as ungodly as you and declare what he has declared, if that's true, who cares if some people don't like you? Does it really matter? Does it really matter? People-pleasing, this is something, this is a signature sin in my life. I've struggled with people-pleasing. And you know, the seasons of my life where I'm most apt to fall into the sin where I'm most frustrated when uh, people send a text or there's a phone call or they say something rude. 
And it's very clear they, they, their, their declaration is not very good about me. Those are the seasons in which I'm not giving any thought to what God has said about me in Jesus. But the seasons in my life where I'm living out of this resource of the doctrine of justification, I'm much less affected by other people's opinions. Don't all other courts look much smaller when you think about God's court of opinion? Number six, justification means hope for those that realize they cannot please God on their own. If you're trying to live the Christian life making God happy, stop. David, are you saying we shouldn't do good works? No, read Ephesians 2.10. If you're saved, you will do good works. But you don't have to earn God's declaration. God's declaration is given. You just have to accept it and remember it and preach it to yourself and live out of it. If you're justified, if you're in Christ. If you're, you know, if, if, when I asked that first question, are you prepared to meet God? If your thought was either I don't know or no, I'm not prepared to meet God. I I think the best way for you to respond to this uh, sermon is just to find me afterward, talk to me. And I can uh, talk to you from the Bible about how to be able to say yes to that question. Or I'll, I'll, I'll pair you up with someone who can study the Bible with you and help you say yes to that question so you can know that you're justified. But if you're a Christian, then I think the basic response to this is, is living out of what God has said about us. If we remember and know what God says about us, what he really thinks about us, it'll completely, radically change how we operate in our lives. I hope you've been able to see that from Scripture this morning. I'm going to ask Pastor Tyler and the band to go ahead and come.